Well, good morning. This morning, we're continuing on with our uh, Lenten teaching series that's entitled Disordered Love. And um, this is a term that was coined by an African bishop 1,600 years ago named Augustine, who talked about sin as disordered love. And I think that that is something that is so um, important for us because it can actually help save the American church from itself if we really take that seriously, because what we have done so much is that we have reduced sin to rule-breaking, and the church is the moral police of teaching the rules and going, these are the rules of what you do, and these are the rules of what you don't do, and don't break the rules. Don't break the rules. And our job is to teach you the rules really well, so don't break the rules. And Augustine says that, no, it's not about the action, that actually the root of sin is about our loves and our desires. That in the scripture passage we're looking at, that it's not about Adam and Eve having a rule of don't eat this fruit and then them breaking it that's the root of sin. It's rather the moment when they say, I would like to be like God. I would like to decide right and wrong. I would like to be the one who's in control of how my life should be lived. And the moment that happens is that's desire that leads to action that Augustine wants us to get at. So sin and even um, Lent, when we talk about repenting, is not about learning the rules or going, man, I know I've been breaking these rules and I want to change, but it's about actually saying, God, reorder my life, reorder my heart, reorder my loves, reorder my desires and my actions will follow. It's getting deeper than rule breaking or teaching rules, okay? It's about disordered love. And then we talked in the last two weeks about that when Adam and Eve do eat of this fruit, we start immediately seeing the impact of sin. Saw that two weeks ago how the first thing they do is they, they make clothes for themselves and they start hiding start hiding from each other. And we do that all the time. We do that through social media. We do that through what we wear. We project this image of our life and our children and our, our, our families and our vacations up there for the world to see. And it's always cultivating this image of what we want to be about versus actually sometimes capturing the truth, right? We hide from each other all kinds of ways. What we wear and what we listen to and what we sell other people we like because we want them to see us differently. And then last week we talked about how the next impact of sin was not only do we hide from each other, but they start hiding from God and shame. Adam and Eve have shame and so they start hiding and not being honest with God and God has to come looking for them. So we're going to continue talking about the effects of sin and the invitation for us to repent because this isn't so much a story where we want to focus on history of like, oh, this happened. But what we want to see is, is that this is our story. Hiding from other people. It's not that Adam and Eve did that. We do that, and it's what glorious thing to repent of that. When you live honestly with other people and let them into your life, it is one of the hardest and one of the most beautiful things that you will ever do. And that's repentance. It's welcoming life in as we do that. So the scripture passage we're going to look at today to continue on in this exploration of disordered love is from Genesis 3, starting in verse 8. This is what it says. They, Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman... whom you gave me to be with me, she gave me fruit from the tree and I ate. 
It's a great example of leadership right there. <laughs> then the Lord God said to the woman, what is that, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent tricked me and I ate. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would be with us this day and help us to hear your good invitation to repent so that we can be liberated from ourselves. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. When I first read this scripture passage, it reminded me of an incident growing up that came to be known in my family as the Mothra Bowl incident. Now, you got to know what a Mothra Bowl is to understand what this is about. A Mothra Bowl, we have an image of it up here. This is a beautiful wooden bowl. Ed Mothrop is an artist in Atlanta. He takes um, his son and now his grandson, his three generations, who take parts of southeastern tree trunks and take one solid piece and carve these bowls out of one solid piece of wood. You see the hole at the top, it's, it's actually hollowed out. These things are very, very light. Uh, the grains in them are beautiful and they are displayed in museums all over the world, in uh, London, in Paris, in Rome, in Tokyo, in museums around the United States. Uh, Moltra bowls are wonderful pieces of art. And uh, I saw one actually on the, on the internet this week when I was trying to remember more about Mothra bowls uh, outside of the story I'm gonna tell you that one, the first one I saw was being uh, valued and auctioned online for almost $7,000. So it's almost wrong to say like, oh, it's a wooden bowl. Like that, that doesn't really do this justice. This is a piece of art, okay? And it was one of the only pieces of art that existed in my household growing up. My mother had been given a Mothrop bowl, looked much like that, from her parents, from my grandparents. They passed it along to them. It was in our living room. It's very prominently displayed. And, and me and my two younger brothers were not allowed to touch it or look at it or go near it. There was like an eight-foot invisible fence that was put up that would like shock you, you know, if we got too close to it. Um, and so this was in our house. Now, the Mothrop bowl incident started when there was a night where my parents went out, okay? My mom and dad went out, and my brothers and I were old enough that my parents trusted us <laughs> to stay at home without a babysitter. And that's a cool moment as a kid, right? Like, that is a great moment when your parents are like, we are going out for the next few hours, and you all are in charge because we trust you. I'm now actually old enough, I'm learning the beauty as a parent of getting to the point where we can look at our kids going, we're going out, without you, because you can now stay at home without a babysitter. It's not that we don't love you, we love you, but we're gonna take like three weeks and go away and you guys will be fine here on your own. So it's great for kids, I'm also learning it's great for parents when you hit that point where your kids can stay at home without a babysitter. What we used to do, my brothers and I, we loved sports. And so there was in our neighborhood a kind of field that was coined, the, the term we used to call it was the hollow. And people would meet in the hollow and we would play sports all the time. My brothers and I loved sports. So when my parents would go out, we would usually go to the hollow and we'd play sports. And there'd be kids from the neighborhood that would come and play. And we'd play you know, football or baseball or ultimate frisbee or you know, all these different things. But this one night when my parents had gone out, we went to the hollow and no one else was there because there were severe storms in the area. My parents had told us to stay in, but we felt like we were wise enough to be able to make the decision for ourselves of what to do. We were trustworthy. Our parents had told us we were trustworthy. So we decided we could go out and go play sports in the hollow. Well, unfortunately, no one was there. So there were only three of us. Now, did that cause us to go in? No. So what we did is we actually um, played an amazing game that you can play with three people. And the game is one of the great sports games that has ever been invented. One of the most creative, one of the most original. It's called Tackle the Man with the Ball. 
There's a lot of strategy involved in this game. Um, if you're a literary person who likes like the double meanings and stuff, this is not your game because everything you need to know about the game is captured in the title. It's tackle the man with the ball. There's a ball, there's a person who has it, and everyone else tries to tackle them. There's no points, there's no strategy. It's just about violence. That's the whole thing that it's about. And so we played tackle the man with the ball. Now tackle the man with the ball, and some of you have played this before and you know that this is true. There's a way that you you play. And that is this, is that there's a way of tackling a ball carrier for ultimate points, kind of victory, moral victory and tackle the man with the ball. And it works like this. Somebody has the ball and the first person that gets to them tackles them by wrapping them up kind of here, right around their waist, okay? You don't want to go too low because then they just fall over and that's not fun. And you don't want to tackle them too high because then you get in the way of the other tacklers. But if you have really good form and sort of go in at their waist, what it does is it immobilizes them. Okay, they can't move anymore, but they don't fall down. And that allows the other tacklers to measure the person up and to have about a 10 foot running start and go in with a clothesline. You can go in with an elbow. You can go in with a knee. You can go in if you're really good with both a knee and an elbow and just do damage to the person. This is a game where there is blood, where there are tears, where there are threats. If you tell mom I did that, I'm telling you, I'll get you back for it, right? There is all kinds of stuff that goes with tackle the man with the ball. Well, we are playing tackle the man with the ball in the hollow, and all of a sudden it started raining, and I realized that there was like lightning like eight feet from us. And being the oldest brother and being responsible, I decided that I needed to, to do something here. So I took the ball, and my brothers thought that, that you know, they were coming to tackle me, and I ran from the hollow back to our house so that we would be safe from the rain and safe from the lightning, as a responsible older brother would do, and we could just keep playing the game inside, right? And so that's what we did. We continued to play the game in our house, and it was awesome because my middle brother, David, who's two years younger than me, um, it was so much more fun to play with him inside because David, and it's taken me years to be able to say this out loud and to be totally comfortable with it, David is the best athlete in our family. I've, I am okay just saying that. I have nothing that's hard for me to put that onto the internet for David to hear. David is the best. He runs full Ironman triathlons still today. He is, he is he's the best athlete in our family. So when you're playing outside in a big field, David could get away because he was faster than the rest of us. But inside, David was contained. And we could take months of aggression out on him in this game. And so one of the moments is he had the ball and we would like the ball go on the ground and we were like kind of kicking it towards David. It's like, go, take it again, man. Like we want you to go. And David picked it up and he ran into our living room and we cornered him, right? We cornered him in the living room where he couldn't get away. He tried to like fake one way and then go this other way. And I knew what he was going to do because I'm smarter than him, even though he's a better athlete than me. And so I did the perfect form tackle, wrapped him up around the waist, totally immobilized him. And then my youngest brother, Hayes, who's five years younger than me, three years younger than David, took a running start. It was amazing to Technique, knee and elbow action together with a divine fury that I had not seen in anyone before. And Hayes hit us with a force where all three of us went catapulting to the side. Unfortunately, there was about three inches between us and some built-in cabinets in our house. And the three of us crashed into these cabinets. And some very important things happened in a very short amount of time. The first is we went through the doors of the cabinets, um, which both broke the wood and managed to pull the hinges out of the cabinet themselves, which is impressive to do both at the same time. 
Somebody started crying. It could have, it, it could have been me. And, the, and, and, and in the flailing of arms and legs and bodies, we heard a sickening crack. Because on top of the cabinet was the Molthrop Bowl, which somebody hit as we crashed into it and knocked it off of the cabinet onto the ground where it split down the middle. From the hole all the way down the side to the bottom. We knew we were in big trouble. And I knew David had hit it. <laughs> and David knew Hayes had hit it. And Hayes knew that I had hit it. David and Hayes knew that I should have known better than to play inside and I was in charge so it was really my fault. I knew it was Hayes' fault because he had hit David too hard as he was coming in because we try to not condone violence among ourselves at all. And we blamed each other. The good news was we had a good idea how to fix it, which was we took super glue and, and glued it back together. And I know all of you know better than me what to do. Uh, in that situation, and it turns out you're right. Super glue is not the thing to do. We got into an argument then about how to glue it back together, and were we lining it up right, and we pulled against it, and then this crack went all the way down the bottom, um, and then my parents came in. <laughs> Two distinct memories I have of that night. One is that in the lore of the Daniel boys getting into trouble for all different kinds of things, the fury, I think is a, an appropriate word, of my mother that night was a sight to behold. It was, it, was, it was like divine wrath being poured out. Like in the book of Revelation, the bowls of wrath being poured out. This is my image of my mother that night, okay? Divine wrath being poured out. And the second one was, we were all still convinced that the other one had knocked it over. I'm 42 years old. David is 40. Hayes is 37. If you got us all up here and put us on a polygraph, I think, I'm being serious, all of us could pass the polygraph saying that it was not us who hit the bowl, that it was somebody else. We were not interested in what was true. We weren't even interested in what was real. We were interested in who was to blame. It's not my fault that I ate of the fruit. The woman whom you gave me She's the one that made me to do it. It wasn't my fault. The serpent whom God, you created, he tricked me into doing it. And so, as some theologians have written about this, this is a very clever way for Adam and Eve to kind of look at God and to say, God, before we get into the blame game here, let's be honest. The serpent causes to do it. You created the serpent. And so... Before you get angry at us, God, you might want to look in the mirror yourself because this is kind of your fault of what happened here, right? It's not my fault. I can tell you who is to blame for this. I would submit to you all today that this is something that is not just something that children do in order to get out of trouble, and it's not just something that Adam and Eve did, that this idea of there are things wrong in the world or things wrong in my life, and I can tell you who's to blame and whose fault it is, that that has become a normalized part of you and your life and your family structure and your friendships and of our nation and our world. We have normalized this behavior to the point that we see it and dwell in it and, and engage it all the time. We've just learned to get slicker about it than me and my brothers were in our house. And this morning, I invite us to think about that and repent. It's all over the place. Let me give you some examples that I guarantee all of you can, can relate to, okay? Example number one of how we 
deflect this. And what we're going to call it today is the inability to accept responsibility. That's the next effect of sin, the inability to accept the responsibility. It's not my fault, but I can tell you who's to blame. Number one, any of you guys have any relationships in your life that are kind of hard? Maybe some of you were dating who you just broke up with, maybe your spouse, maybe a friend, maybe a sibling, maybe your parents, maybe your kids. All of us, some of the most painful stuff in our life are relationships that are hard, relationships that are challenging. And almost all of us, when we think about that relationship, we are experts at what the other one has done to make it hard, right? It usually starts with a phrase like this, I know I'm not perfect, but. I know I'm not perfect, but when you do that with the kids, it just drives me crazy and starts us fighting. I know I'm not perfect, but when my sister did that to me years ago, it became something I couldn't forgive. I know I'm not perfect. But when my parents made that decision or that declaration, that was the thing that broke my relationship with them forever because I saw them for who they were. These are things that exist in all of our life, all of our marriages, all of our dating relationships, all of our friendships where we can point at someone and say, I know things are hard and let me tell you what you're doing to cause this. Not my fault, but let me tell you who is to blame. I feel that conviction, right? Every once in a while, Beth, my wife, we have had a fight like twice in 18 years of marriage, right? Every once in a while, my two daughters don't think that I am the coolest guy in the history of the world. They get annoyed by me, and sometimes I don't think they're the coolest either, right? And in that moment where maybe there's an eye roll or a, you know, or one of those kind of things that parents know well when they walk up, and I get angry and annoyed, my first response in that moment is not to go, I wonder what I've done to contribute to them feeling that way. That's not my natural response. I don't have to be taught what my natural response is. My natural response is, why do you do that? Why do you say that? Why do you react that way? Why is it that that happens? Because you are making this situation hard. Or take for another example, kids in school. One of my good friends in Atlanta just let me know recently that she is going to be retiring as a high school teacher. And it is a tragedy because she's not at the retirement age, she's switching jobs. She is switching as a high school teacher because she says she cannot take it anymore. And it's not the curriculum and it's not the testing and it's not the other stuff that's driving her away. You know what it is? It's parents. It's parents who are coming in and saying, why does Timmy not have an A in this class? Do you know they need to be in the top 7% in order to graduate and to get into a school in Texas? Do you understand what college they're supposed to go to and what it is they need to do? And they have a C in your class. Do you know how the other math teacher taught it? Do you know what she gave in order for people to be prepared? And you didn't teach it that way. You didn't tell them the outline the right way. You didn't present it to them the right way. It wasn't clear to him that he had a pop quiz tomorrow. Well, that's the definition of pop quiz. Well, it shouldn't be. You know, they should know. And so you are messing up their life. And she said that even compared to several years ago, there's not this ability to engage the student or the family at maybe the reason Timmy got a C is because he didn't study. Maybe it's because he just doesn't like math and isn't wired that way and God uniquely made him in a different way to kind of be gravitating towards other things. Maybe it's because when little precious Timmy, who you love so much and is so good, goes into their room with their phone because their phone has access to friends who help him study, maybe they're not studying it couldn't be that you need better rules in your house. It couldn't be that you need to be more authentic. It couldn't be that this. It has to be that you, the teacher, are getting this wrong and you are messing up their life. Because don't tell us it's the rules in our house that need to change. Or take, for example, what we see in politics right now. 
Take what we see happening in our national dialogue. Just this week, we have seen a number of things where people who have enormous amounts of power don't have things go their way or systems who go their way, and they are very clear that it's not their fault. But they are very clear about who is to blame. They're very clear that if you're a Democrat, it's the Republicans who are to blame. And if you're a Republican, it's very clear that the Democrats who are to blame. And there's plenty of media coverage that will back up that point of view. And here's the problem, folks. Here's the problem. Whether it's your marriage or your friendships or in our national discourse or when it comes to situations like in schools or anything else, when we continue to deflect blame to the other, nothing changes. Nothing changes. Nothing will ever become different. That change and transformation has to begin when we stop in a moment and say, these things are broken and wrong. This relationship is hard. And while I'm not going to accept total blame for it, I do need to consider whether I have something, some way contributed to this. And friends, I want you to listen. If we could identify this and see it and change a little bit, oh my gosh, the impact on our world would be unbelievable but it's so ingrained in us. Think about it this way. Just imagine a world for me. Imagine a, a wonderful, beautiful world with me for a second where if tomorrow we woke up and in our national politics, the big headline was that the leaders of the Republican Party Donald Trump and Paul Ryan had spent the weekend reflecting and they wanted to engage in a national conversation about the reason that so many people aren't getting on board with their policies. They want to have a national conversation of imagining why it is that certain people groups may not trust them in power. They want to have a national conversation of reflecting of are the economic principles that we've been touting really the best way to go forward for everyone because there are a lot of people who don't have very much that are very, very frightened of that and might there be some validity in that. We are not saying that that's true, but we have to really consider that maybe we've gotten some of this wrong. Maybe we need to reconsider some of our positions. Maybe we need to engage the dysfunction that around us. What if they came out and said that's the next thing. We're not going to try anything else in the agenda until we've had a big public conversation about the potential corrosive impact of public policies and economic policies that come from a conservative viewpoint in this country. And we're going to just have that conversation before we go any other. And Fox News heard about that and said, oh my gosh, yes, that is the most important thing to happen. And Fox News, we have contributed to that because we have kind of given an angle of that way. And we want to admit that publicly. And we want to tell people that. And we want to engage that we have only given a kind of a focus this in a certain point of view. And so we'll host this forum. We'll put it on. We're not going to have advertising. We won't make a profit over this. We're just going to think everybody needs to come around and get as much exposure to conservatives leading this conversation about their own policies as as wide of an audience as we could get. Wouldn't that be amazing? I mean, wouldn't that be incredible if we did that? I guarantee you that's not going to be the headline tomorrow. And on the other hand, what if Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and whoever else is in charge of the Democratic Party, I don't know who they are right now, came out and said, we want to have a conversation, a national conversation about the hypocrisy of American liberalism. We want to have a conversation about the hypocrisy of American liberalism because we have touted being inclusive and open-minded and inclusive and open-minded and inclusive and open-minded as long as people are inclusive and open-minded like us. And we have to admit the fact that when they're not, we label them as backwards and bigoted and we don't want to listen to what they have to say. 
And that that has actually stifled really critical, important conversations happening in this country because folks are scared of being slapped with a label on them so they won't be honest about what they really think or what they really wonder about. And it has stunted national conversation. And we need to own as liberals that we have been a part of this. And we want to confess that and wonder about it with the entire nation and ask them their viewpoints. And MSNBC heard that and they're like, oh my gosh, we have been a part of that too. And we have promoted that viewpoint. And so we're going to host that conversation. Wouldn't that be incredible? I said, wouldn't that be incredible? I mean, like, maybe the rest of you are not as frustrated by the status quo of this stuff as I am right now, but that would be amazing. Right? If I can't get an amen to this, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna leave, I'm done. Like, seriously, we are in a broken situation right now. Wouldn't it be amazing if they did that? I want you to listen to what I'm saying. Wouldn't it be amazing if they did it? Because you could have that conversation tomorrow with your friends, with your family, with your spouse with your circle of like-minded people who all think and vote the same way as you do. No, 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 no. I'm not the one to have that conversation. It's their job. I got stuff to do tomorrow. It's their job to do that. Nothing changes. It's not my fault that I ate it. The woman who you gave me, it's not my fault. The serpent tricked me into doing it. This is us. This is you. This is me. And it destroys us individually and in relationships and in our nation and in our world. And followers of Jesus should be on the front lines of living differently. We should be on the front lines of changing this conversation in our lives and in our families and in our nation. We should be on the front lines of changing it. And the reason that we should be on the front lines is not about tolerance or inclusivity or anything else. Those buzzwords that make us feel good and don't have teeth. It's about the fact that we are the only faith that exists that starts from the beginning as saying, we do not have all the answers. We do not have the ability to fashion our lives in the right way. We don't have the ability to learn all the rules. We can't memorize enough the scriptures. We can't figure out enough guilt in our lives. We can't get disciplined to self to get everything right. We need a savior. We need Jesus. We should be on the front lines of going, this is what I believe, but I could be dead wrong. Or as the apostle Paul writes, I see in a mirror dimly. And that means if you are a liberal or if you are a conservative, that God in his fullness, I guarantee you, is looking at some of your positions, not the ones you think you're wishy-washy on, the ones you hold most dear going, you are wrong. You are wrong in this. You have missed the boat on how you see this. And we should be the first ones who go, we need Jesus. It's not our ways, it's your days. It's not my brokenness. I want to live by your rules. So God, show me what it is that I am missing here. Show me how my view wants. Show me how the ways I live in my marriage. Show me the things I do as a friend. Show me how that is a contributing factor to the tension and the conflict that exists all around. We should be on the front lines of our comfort level of of being able to do it. But the church and Christians are usually in the background wagging our finger going, you just broke the rules. You just broke the rules of how it's supposed to be done. Because the problems in our culture are real and they're you all, the culture that's causing it.
And so we lob hand grenades over our walls of comfort and wonder why no one wants to come be a part of us anymore. This is us. And the greatest invitation I can offer us, if you know and see yourself in this, is to repent. Is to repent. One of those life-giving things we could do is to repent. I'm going to bring up here three very simple things. Very simple things that I just invite us this week, what repentance might look like. That all of us could do, every one of us could do this if we took this seriously. Number one, to review areas of tension or conflict in your life, relationships, and our nation and world. What are the relationships that are hard? Oh, I don't want to have talked to my sister in years. I don't, you know, I don't think about it anymore. That's not true. Lean towards it. Oh, I don't like what's happening in politics. I just ignore it right now. Not an option. Let's name it. Let's pay attention to it. Let's look at it. Let's see what's going on. Number two, prayerfully ask God how you and your positions might be contributing factors to the tension or conflict. If you're really brave, you'll ask people in your small group. Most of you won't do that because you don't want to hear what they might say. But you could ask other people, like, how do you think me responding this way makes Beth angry? Because we all know Beth's wrong in this, right? Because I know how I responded, but give me some feedback as to how maybe I contributed 1% to the conflict that we experience or the tension that we experience. Third, prayerfully ask God to show you how to repent and turn your actions in a new direction. And do this together. Do this in community. These are simple things. They are critical. And people don't do them anymore because we are so locked in to what we know is right. And the problems out there are caused by someone else. It's not my fault she made me do it. It's not my fault the serpent made me do it. This week I invite us to repent. To repent. We need this. Our families need this. Our marriages need this. Our relationships need this. Our families need this. Our nation needs leaders to do this. Not leaders that we point to and say, you better start. But it begins with us. If we took that seriously, even in our own imperfect small ways, our world will change. Your world will change. And that is a good thing. That's good news. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we ask this day that you would help us to see with truth and honesty the tensions and conflicts in our lives, in our families, in our marriages, in our friendship, in our world, and ask the question, what do I need to own? What do I need to hear? What do I need to experience? What do I need to embrace and be challenged in. It'll be a glorious thing to repent this week. Lead us and give us the faith and courage to do so, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing one last song before we go.